I was listening to your show where I learned this fabulous, incredible thing that, well, fabulous is the wrong word, but incredible anyway, that remdesivir, the drug of choice, uh, uh, is not even FDA approved. I, and I wonder whether we could start there and you could explain that, that story because it's ludicrous. <laughs> it is ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, we can talk about remdesivir. Remdesivir, which I find even most interesting now, right? This is just an experimental uh, antiviral drug. Remdesivir is still being pushed all around the world. It actually was FDA approved for the United States a year after the pandemic started. So at the end of October of 2022. But what we find very interesting is when it was actually approved for the first year, which ended up killing 1.1 million people in America, it was not FDA approved. It was an experimental antiviral that had actually failed four different human trials in four years prior to the pandemic. It actually failed each one of them, was determined to be the most deadly and the most toxic drug. <clears throat> so it was excluded for the rest of the trials. And then we were lied to and told that it was found safe and effective is what we were told. And then Anthony Fauci at the beginning of the pandemic told the United States government, do not export remdesivir until the end of 2020 to any other country. So at the end of 2020, there was 2.2 million people who had supposedly died from COVID-19 or designated as died from COVID-19 around the world. And 1.1 million were from the United States of America. Half of all the deaths in the world came from a country that has less than 5% of the world's population. So this global viral threat that didn't even start in the United States ended up claiming the lives of over half of the individuals worldwide. And the only thing that was different between what the United States did and what the rest of the world did was use a drug called remdesivir proven to cause in 31% of all people, multiple organ failure, acute kidney failure and death in 31% of people within a 10 day period. Then at the end of October of 2022, they started shipping it out to countries like Brazil. And Brazil had, in the first four months of using remdesivir, an increased matched total of death from the entire year of 2020 by March of 2021. So you'll just see that there's this uh, horrific outcome with remdesivir. One thing that is actually uh, ironic to me but uh, not coincidental by nature, as we're seeing with this global threat and lies and deceit. Now, in every hospital in, in America, they no longer call the drug remdesivir. They've stopped saying that, and the administrators of hospitals are telling nurses and medical doctors, don't call it remdesivir. So no one's hearing the word remdesivir anymore. Wow. They're, hearing the word, they're hearing the word Veclery, which is, is the brand name. And I have made sure the world knew what that, that that was its name, its, its brand name, but they do not say remdesivir anymore. So we're having to warn audiences there. They have caught on to the fact that most people in the public do not want remdesivir, this drug that rhymes with run death is near. This is what we got people to, to recognize. So they just switched it to the new, another brand name, Veclery, which interestingly enough, Clive, uh, Veclery, I started telling audiences two years ago, it had Veclery as a word. If you if you transpose the two words or two letters, K and L, you get the word Veclery. And Veclery just happens to be a, or Valkyrie. Valkyrie just happens to be a Nordic term meaning 
historically chooser of the slain. That's what that brand name represents. So not ironic that they use remdesivir and incentivize hospitals around this country and around the world to use it in all the elderly 60 years and older, particularly here in America, with a 20% add-on bonus if they'll just use this toxic drug. Now, one other interesting thing is if you go on c19early.com, so c19early.com, this website gets updated daily. Every day around the world, they update and receive updates on research studies that are being concluded on nutritional supplements, on over-the-counter medications, on prescriptions being used on people around the world in hospitals with COVID. Uh, the most important thing to me is if you're treating someone with COVID, the first goal is to make sure they stay alive. So the mortality results are what I always look at on c19early.com. I was asked to go to Canada last week and do presentations, so I did in several cities. And at each one of those events, I showed the C19 early updated uh, data currently right now for this month for the last three years. So, and the reason why I do this is out of the top seven, seven resulting over-the-counter medications or nutrients or prescriptions that are listed as the most successful at getting people out of hospitals and, in, and keeping them alive. So their mortality results. Of the top seven, five of them are nutritional supplements, not drugs, of the top seven that are the most successful around the entire world. That includes curcumin, that includes nigella sativa, which is black cumin, black cumin. And then you've got, uh, man, there's several of them. But anyway, you've got like vitamin C, you've got vitamin D, you've got zinc in there. And then I show the entire audiences at the bottom of the list, uh, at the very bottom, it only has a 12% uh, survivability rate, this drug of all the drugs on the entire list is Remdesivir at 12% success rate at keeping people alive in hospitals worldwide. And it has an estimated cost of $3,200 every, every single uh, dose. And the dose is a five-day intravenous injection. It is the second most expensive drug on the entire list. It's the most utilized around the world. Has 33 studies with 150,000 patients with only a 12% survivability rate. That's uh, really pathetic. Do you know that sleep and exercise, if the patient's in the hospital, it's on the list. Sleep has a 51% survivability rate. And they tell you in the studies, if the patients just get eight hours of sleep a day while they're sick, they have a 51% success rate. If they exercised before they got COVID on a weekly basis, not daily basis, it's on the list. People have a 35% survivability rate before they ever got COVID. That outperforms by triple, quadruple, all of remdesivir's effects. <laughs> so uh, remdesivir is just a pathetic performing drug. It's not anywhere near successful. Uh, there's many other things like quercetin that are on that list that are higher than remdesivir. Zinc is on the list higher than remdesivir, vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, you name it. Hydrogen peroxide, povidone, doing, doing nothing. nothing, povidone, <laughs> povidone iodine is actually at 70 plus percent survivability rate if you just supplemented iodine which is really funny to me compared to remdesivir i don't know why i don't know what data people are looking at but they should really turn their head away from the medical profession should 
question, doubt, and not administer a failing drug like remdesivir. I mean, you think three years was enough to watch the data there, Clive, and to watch your patients dying in hospitals around the world. But uh, I guess their licenses and their livelihood are more important. What, what percentage of doctors now do you think are are awake enough to even see the disaster that's happening? I mean, or are they all asleep? What do you think? No, I think there's probably 20% are aware, maybe only 5% acted. I, I, do you really think as many as 5% acted? That, that would probably be a result. But No. Uh, if, well, if you listen to what Dr. Peter McCullough says, he says there's only 500 that are acting and awake, and there's over a million doctors just in America that are refusing to turn a blind or continuing to turn a blind eye to the entire thing. So whatever that statistic would be. And I tell Peter, I'm like, you know what? Uh, I don't think it's even 500 people. I think it's like, I only continue to see the same like 50 doctors, maybe, or 30 doctors that show up at these events or continue to speak out and are testifying in legislative buildings with me and around the world. Uh, it's not very many. So I'll take the numbers of with Peter McCullough, 500 people that are awake, maybe 100 are acting, maybe, acting against the narrative. But uh, there's yeah. over a million. It, it's insane, actually. We, we don't really understand it. The thing that I find shocking is that so many of those medically trained doctors um, would be so admired if they gave up the medical profession and went sort of, you know, I'm a non-doctor, because people would trust them because they've got all that medical background, even if most of it was rubbish, but they still have that level of trust. I don't think they'd necessarily lose their income, which is obviously what they're scared of. Maybe they're scared of being sued because if they admitted that they knew that they were making a mistake, I don't know. Well, I will tell you, most of the doctors have been sued by their medical boards or by their medical med associations. Uh, all the ones I walk with, walk with, talk with, uh, we've all been sued. I mean, I was already sued with 10 allegations of breaking my scope of practice law within the chiropractic profession uh, in December of 2020. So the what I believe happened is I believe the Texas Medical Board contacted the chiropractic Texas board to tell them to shut me up. Uh, and so the, the medical and chiropractic board attorney that I hired, this attorney told me that he's represented medical doctors and chiropractors in Texas for over 20 years. And he has never seen more than one allegations of a broken principle and a scope of practice that a medical board or chiropractic board sought sanctions on a doctor that he represented and the letter that came from my board was 10 different scope of practice allegations. And my attorney said, I've never seen more than two ever in 20 years. He said, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, the boards are going to try to make an example out of you for the entire profession worldwide to make sure they all shut up and don't speak out and don't try to stand against the narrative. And I said, I won't share on this podcast what I said, but uh, on this recording, I told my attorney, you make sure that the Texas Chiropractic Board knows this about me that i will make an example out of every single one of them in the media and i will petition to have their resignation if they set out to make an example out of me i said why don't you just tell them dr artist expects you to champion behind him while he tries to save and preserve as many lives as possible around the world if they'll do that with me i will honor them respect them and <laughs> gladly have them join arm in arm with me but if they decide to try to make an example out of me for trying to protect people uh, then i will actually intentionally 
petition to have them removed from office by people declaring and demanding that they have replacements of their positions. Uh, we need people that uh, that actually govern even us. We need them to oversee our licenses. We need them to stand for the people we're trying to represent and trying to lead and trying to inspire. Uh, we did not swear these oaths to do no harm and try to be great for the individuals we're are entrusting their lives with us. And we're, we're supposed to do everything in our power to make sure we do nothing but right by them. So uh, anyway, to try to shut us up was a bad idea. So I'll just tell you right now, there was a doctor here in the United States. His name is Brian Tyson, and he happened to be fighting the medical boards in his state for man, two years. He had run up a quarter of a million dollars in legal fees. We're getting off of a flight a couple months ago. And Peter McCullough turns to me as we're walking off and he says, did you see the text, Brian Tyson's, uh, the medical board is dropping their uh, their attempts to actually go after Brian Tyson and his license. And I said, oh, they dropped all their charges. And he goes, yes. And he high fives me. And I said, what are we high fiving? Did the medical board say they were going to give him back his $250,000 in legal fees? And he goes, no. And I immediately turned to my wife and I said, hey, honey, did you hear they, uh, the medical board is not seeking action against Brian Tyson anymore. And she goes, no. And then she goes, well, what does that mean for us? Cause she could see, I was really excited. She goes, well, what does that mean for us? Why are you so excited about that? And I said, I promise you in the next 24 hours, I'm going to get a phone call from the Texas chiropractic board saying they don't know what to do with me. And they're going to drop all charges. I said, uh, this all came from the medical board here in Texas. I know it did. And so sure enough, it wasn't even 12 hours later. It's, it gets very interesting, Clive, to be able to call the actions of people around you. You start to understand their behavior and you can call it out before they do it. But it was 12 hours later, my attorney called me and said, I just got a phone call from the Texas Chiropractic Board. I quote, we are no longer seeking action against Dr. Artis's license. We don't know what to do with him. And, and Wade, his name is Wade, actually said to them on the phone, he goes, I told them, Dr. Artis already told you what to do with him. He said to leave him alone and let him go save lives. <laughs> so anyway, it has been, and of course, I spent thousands of dollars having to actually fight the board for a year plus, but uh, it was totally worth it to try to at least bring some, some protection, education, inspiration, and warning to the masses. I just couldn't help it. They took my dad's, my father-in-law's life in a hospital in February of 2020. How many lives I was hoping, praying, could I help preserve and not end up with the same outcome that left me and my wife and family uh, emotionally just charged, upset, angry, feeling destitute and lonely. And I didn't want anybody else feeling that way. And uh, so I think we've done a really great job. It's been interesting to watch Clive, the LA Times published the other day, uh, about two months ago. They published in the LA Times without talking to me. I'm not even mentioned in there. But I tried to come up with a way three years ago to get audiences and podcasters and TV stations, hosts that were interviewing me. I was trying to find a way to get them to remember the name Remdesivir because it was hard for them to repeat back to me. So I just told them, call it Run Death is Near. <laughs> it rhymes enough. And it actually explains what it does. The LA Times published two months ago that there's two wives in Los Angeles suing a hospital system for killing their father or their husbands uh, who did not consent verbally and in writing to remdesivir treatment and both of these guys got remdesivir and died and the wives are suing the hospital the journalist wrote uh, the drug that they are angry about is called remdesivir 
And then the journalist writes, otherwise known worldwide as run death is near. <laughs> and I was like, rocket, we got it. We got this message out to the rest of the world, regardless of censorship. It wasn't held back completely. Uh, that was very, very exciting for me to see that it made it out to the mainstream media. Uh, even if it appears two and a half years later, I was very excited to know this has penetrated the supposedly unpenetratable censorship of mainstream media. We were able to to do enough on our end with platforms like yours, platforms like us, and then showing up in person at places all over the place trying to champion for humanity. So is there, is there not a big class action going on somewhere about remdesivir? Yes, there is, actually. So there are class action lawsuits against hospitals, use of remdesivir and no consent in Minnesota, in Texas, and in multiple hospital systems throughout California. So we're actually going after three hospital systems right now in Fresno, California, one hospital system in Los Angeles, two in Houston, actually, one in, I said Minnesota, but it's actually in Michigan. So those are all going on right now. And then there is another class action lawsuit against Gilead Sciences, who manufactures remdesivir. And we're going, on, going after them with a class action lawsuit of false advertisement of safety and efficacy from their actual, uh, from their own advertising and marketing material. So uh, th there's some lawyers, some great lawyers in the United States that are helping us with those, which is really, really exciting. So we're very much hopeful. And there's another lawsuit, just, you know, Thomas Renz, just let me know a couple of weeks ago when I saw him in San Antonio, he just filed a lawsuit. You can see it Renz-law.com. Uh, they filed a lawsuit in the upper district or upper area of Alabama. There's actually a, a hospital pharmacist who reached out to him to tell him that he, she reviewed with the hospital administrator she works for and is employed with, she told them all of the data from the research studies on remdesivir gave it to the administration and said, I will not be part of a, of a protocol here in this hospital as an employee. I will not fill the prescriptions for remdesivir, midazolam. I won't do it. Those drugs are going to kill the, the patients in here. I will not be a part of that plot to cause harm and injury. I swore an oath not to do those things. And the administrative board told them, uh, you're going to do it or you're going to get fired. So she and Thomas Renz are filing a employee discrimination case or wrongful, what do they call it? Wrongful termination suit against the hospital. And she is ready to testify and has those conversations recorded with the administrators, which is what makes it so powerful. The administrators of the hospital are telling her, we don't care if you as a pharmacist are the expert and know these drugs are toxic and deadly, you're going to follow the protocol or lose your job. So the, there's three attorneys that were very excited about this lawsuit. Dan Watkins, Michael Hamilton, and Thomas Renz were all thrilled while I was standing there learning from Thomas Renz about these. Dan Watkins and Mike Hamilton are the medical malpractice attorneys who are overseeing the Fresno, California lawsuits and representing the families, the Houston and Michigan lawsuits also. So uh, very, very exciting and very, very disturbing and very upsetting. It's all disgusting to hear this over and over and over. The thing with doctors that they the Hippocratic Oath has a get out right at the beginning. It says first do no harm, second right. do whatever they like. Just so long as first they don't do any. Exactly right. The very first thing, do no harm. So it's really a 
it's really been a wild world, Clive, for the last three years. It's like everybody's lost their mind. 95% of all people have lost their ability to uh, consciously first care about the human being standing in front of you over all else. And uh, let's just follow protocols. And it's just odd to me. And I really do think people ask me all the time, why are so many doctors not getting involved? And I say, I think it's unfortunate, but I think there's been a massive attempt to make sure the majority of people that work, for example, in the United States, that they're right on the brink of debt, like living paycheck to paycheck. And when they knew they could get the majority of our society to do that, to lock down the country or threaten them with no pay for a period of time, it, if they don't go along with what we tell you to, I mean, this tells you just how massive the plan is. It's been rolled out here for the last many decades. Like every conceivable aspect of our lives has been determined knowing we wouldn't, the majority of us say no to the narrative, fall for the narrative, sign up for the vaccine agenda, regardless, do what you tell us to do, intoxicate people with drugs that are proven not safe and effective, nor FDA approved in order to get people to do that and threaten them with their livelihood. You've got to put them in a position where they feel threatened monetarily to be able to survive without your job. And I think a huge part of the play has been to make sure most of us in the United States, including medical professionals of any kind, that they are living as close to paycheck to paycheck as possible. They need their job to survive and to pay and buy food and put it on the table, pay for their other homes and cars, uh, pay for their utilities. Uh, and so the threat was very, very real and very instantaneous. There was no, for the majority of Americans, it wasn't, oh, I can step back and not work for a month while I look for another job. No, it was, I live Friday to Friday like everybody else. And if I don't get a paycheck now, what are we going to do? Have to sell stuff or barter stuff in order to get things that we need to live. So unfortunately, I think that was the majority of people's excuses why they turned a blind eye. And uh, to me, it's even worse.